I, I, I'm excited about today. I, I want to get back to the money or friends question in a minute, but I, I just want to acknowledge this is an awesome day. So this is the first day we've done two services other than Easter. We had 150 people in here this morning uh, for first service at nine o'clock, and we've got a full house this morning for the second service. And so um, I remember hearing stories of just a few people meeting in a living room uh, and a bunch of little kids running around. I remember a couple years ago, I had to beg people to sit up front. Um, we had about half the pews that were in here because uh, we just tried to spread the pews out so it looked fuller. So we had like half of these pews were like backstage or hidden somewhere. We had to bring out some new pews because more people were coming. Then we started, you guys remember, we just started pulling out chairs everywhere and we had chairs out in the back. And then we opened up the balcony and now we're doing two services. So I just want to recognize that it's a good day, huh? That God is good, that he's working, that he's moving, that uh, the church is growing in some really fun ways and it's been really cool uh, to be a part of it and, uh, and really exciting. Um, Mark McCarthy bought me this book this morning. Oh, yeah, it's going to get out of hand. I already was just... All right, yeah, we had to slow down the first service on that. Uh, Mark McCarthy bought me this uh, Would You Rather book because he wasn't pleased with the questions that we ask on Sundays when we have uh, a little discussion between announcement time and when I come up, and so he thought this would help. But, but what happens is you ask the question, like, would you rather have... What was the question? Lots of money or lots of friends? This is what I heard, I overheard everybody say both, yeah. right? I'd, I'd rather have both. Like, I, I like it that the church is full of my friends, but we also like offering and tithes. Like, I, I we'll take both here at the church. Like, we're fine with both. Um, one of the questions was, uh, we were reading it backstage with the band earlier, and it says, uh, it says, would you rather have a hairy tongue or hairy palms? I'm gonna go with neither. Like I, I would rather have. I don't. I don't want either of those. I, I don't. Those both sound disgusting. One of the questions was, would you rather have? Um, would you rather be without your cell phone for a week or without the internet for the week? Uh, and all the young people in the room were like, that's the same thing. <laughs> it's, it's, there's no difference between that. It's the same thing. Uh, but here's the thing. We we. We've been talking about this kind of idea of love over fear, and we've been journeying kind of as a church together through uh, this book that Dan White Jr. wrote, and we've been talking about it for the last eight weeks of how do we move out of the polarization of our world that says everything is us versus them, everything is this or that, everything is Republican or Democrat, everything is this group or this group, and how do we move towards a place where we actually love our enemies? How do we move towards a place where we're not so reactive in the way that we respond to everything that's going on in the world around us, but we learn to carry the posture of Jesus into our everyday life and actually learn to love and care for the world? Um, because the truth is, like in our culture right now, somebody asked me the other day, they were like, is this our pre-election series? Is this what we're doing here? <laughs> kind of. Um, <laughs> We could tone it down a little bit with our anger at one another uh, around the election, I think. Um, but we've been talking about this for, for a few weeks, and, and, and as we've been looking at it, I've just been struck by the fact that, that there is almost like this pressure release valve sometimes that happens in our lives when we react to something. Like something happens, somebody comes at us, somebody um, gets angry with us, somebody posts something on some sort of social media page that we don't like, somebody does something to us, and it's almost as if um, when we respond back with a text or with a 
whatever on social media or with a response, it's like, ooh, I feel good. I feel good because I got my opinion out there. I feel good because I told them what's up. I, I feel good because I put them in their place. I feel good because I won that argument by posting an article that no one has ever read before from a Russian. I don't know. Like, like I, I just feel good about all these different things. And so it's this idea of like there's this release valve. And, and we've started to believe in our culture that outrage, outrage is a fruit of the Spirit. Like every single day we get on the news or we get on social media and it like just tells us, it, it, it conditions us, it disciples us into what we're supposed to be outraged about this week. And so if you follow the news cycle, the news cycle as we've been talking about is all about fear. It's all about driving us to a place of fear. It's this entertainment news that's going on in our culture that's built to produce a reaction from us. It's built so that we would react and respond. And, and, and today, we want to look at the life of Jesus, and we want to talk about how Jesus is always about a third way. C.S. Lewis coined the phrase many years ago, the third way, and he talks about there is kind of the way of the, way of the world, and then there's, then there's the way of Jesus. And, and, and what we're faced with oftentimes is these kind of would-you-rather questions, that we feel like we have to land in one side or the other. Would you rather have a hairy tongue or a hairy palm? Like, I have to choose one. I don't really have to choose either of those things because I don't have either of those things and don't want them. But we fall into a, like a false dichotomy or a false polarization where we believe there's only two ways to every situation, that everything is either this way or that way. Everything is either Republican or Democrat. Everything is either this camp or this camp. Everything is this or that. And we just start landing in these camps. And the thing that Jesus did beautifully was Jesus modeled for us a third way. He modeled for us a way to get out of polarization, a way to move away from false dichotomies, and a way to actually step into the fruits of the Spirit, which actually is not outrage, it's peace and become a different kind of human, to love in a different way, to operate in a different way. And in a world that is full of violence, sometimes it's hard to imagine these things. Uh, Walter Wink, who's a brilliant writer, was talking about the social structures of our day compared to the social structures of Jesus' day. He said this, the domination system is characterized by unjust economic relationships, oppressive political relations, biased race relations, patriarchal gender relations, hierarchical power relations, and the use of violence to maintain them all. This was Jesus' world, and he would suggest it's also how our world works in many ways. Then he says this. The dominion system, the domination system, the system that works itself out by violence and attacking is a myth. It's a story that explains how things got this way. The story that the rulers of domination society told each other and their subordinates is what we might call the myth of redemptive violence. It enshrines the belief that violence saves, that war brings peace, that might makes right, and one of the oldest continuously repeated stories in the world is a myth. And here's, the, here, here's what it is. It's that when we are attacked, we attack back. Jesus actually said, blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the ones who don't fight back. 
Blessed are the ones who don't have to get the last word in. Blessed are the ones who don't have to repay violence with violence. And so over the last few weeks, we've been talking about our response and reaction to enemies, our response and reaction to people who are different than us, even our response and reaction to just people that are plain annoying. Like, how do we live in, because there's a lot of annoying people in the world, right? How do we live in the world with annoying people but still love them with the love of Jesus? How do we care for them? How do we model a different way? Because I would suggest we're in a cultural moment right now. And in this cultural moment, on either side of us, there is attacking and battling and outrage and frustration and all of these things. And the church gets to model a different way. And I'm concerned that we're not modeling the right way. I'm concerned that there's a better way that we can inhabit the space of our culture right now where we actually model the way of peacemaking where we actually model the way of forgiveness, where we actually model the way of love and become an example of what that looks like. But when Jesus talks about this, he says, listen, we don't have to. Here's, here's the polarization that we live in. We have two options. When conflict comes, when an enemy comes at us, when somebody sends us a nasty email, when somebody at works makes a snarky comment to us, whatever that thing is, our two options are we attack or we avoid. And Jesus says, I think there's a third way. So the options are not just that I have to like fire back. I have to fire back another email. I have to fire back a post on social media. I have to make a snarky comment back to them. I have to get the last word in. I have to punch them, whatever that is. That's not the best option. But the other best option is not to just say, I'm just gonna sit this one out. Like everybody's fighting. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna ignore it. I'm gonna pretend like there's no conflict. I'm gonna pretend like there's nothing happening. Jesus does not suggest that we go passive. He suggests a third way. Matthew chapter 5 is Jesus' most famous sermon. I would suggest it's the most famous sermon that's ever been written. Uh, if you guys want to turn with me, we're going to Matthew 5, verses 39 through 41. And as Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount, he gave very clear and concise examples about how we do this. It's very simple understanding of here's three lifetime, like real examples of how this lives out in first century Jewish life, and here's how we're supposed to respond to enemies. So rather than attack or avoid, Jesus models a new way, a way of affection, a way of love, a way of setting the table in the presence of your enemy and humanizing yourself and your enemy. He models a completely new way. But here's the problem with this. We have domesticated these passages. Right? So we have made these passages palpable for us when actually these passages are incredibly revolutionary. Let's, let's get to it and, 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 I'll, and I'll show you why. It's a, little con like it's a little crazy. Matthew 5, 39 through 41. Jesus said, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, then let him have your coat as well. And if anyone forces you to go a mile, then go with them the extra mile. This is revolutionary stuff. Now, we've domesticated this, right? The church is great at domesticating the revolutionary words of Jesus. 
The church is great at making palpable something that is revolutionary. This is crazy stuff that Jesus is talking about here. And it seems silly and it seems nonsensical in a world where there are real bullies, where there are real extremists, where there is real violence, where there are people that will take advantage of us. And so the question becomes, what do we do when we're faced with violence? What do we do when we're faced with attack? What do we do when we're faced with an enemy face to face who is trying to take something from us? And he, he gives three examples. He says the first one is that you turn the other cheek. And we've domesticated that by saying that's like I'm not going to get the last word in. I'm just not going to get the last word in. But it's so much deeper than that. It's, it's uh, give them your coat. If somebody sues you for your, for your cloak or your tunic, then also give them your coat. Which we, we've associated with like, well, I'm just going to give some change to this homeless guy. And then uh, the, the last one, the last one is if anybody asks you to go a mile, go two miles, which, which we've been like, well, I stayed, I stayed after church and picked up some trash for a few minutes. We've domesticated something that is revolutionary, and I want us to see what Jesus is talking about in first century Jewish life, because this is crazy intense, what Jesus is talking about. He is, he is modeling for us having a redemptive imagination, He's modeling for us having a, 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 an imagination of how we get out of the would-you-rathers and get into the third way. Um, so the first one is turn your other cheek. Notice that Jesus clarifies which cheek. You see that? Which, which cheek does he say? You guys are losing points. First service beat you on the, on the uh, it, it's right there on the screen, right? Right, it's the right side, right? So, so here's, here's what he's talking about. In first century Jewish culture, and this is a little crude, and I apologize for it, but it helps with the context of all of this. In first century Jewish culture, the left hand was the hand that was, was considered the hand that you did for anything that was considered unclean. So when you went to the bathroom, the left hand is what you used, right? A little crude, a little gross. So it was considered like the hand that you would not hit with would be your left. It would have been your right hand. And so what Jesus is saying is... If somebody hits you, what he's imagining is this kind of hit, right? A backhanded slap. Uh, when I was in high school, they called this a pimp slap. Am I allowed to say that? That's what they called that. Uh, that's what they called that. It, like, this kind of just like smacking across the face. Like, like, that's what he's imagining, which is the most dehumanizing and degrading way to be hit, Right? It would be the way, a, in first century Jewish culture, it would be the way a master hit a servant. It would be the way a Roman soldier hit a non-Roman citizen. It was this idea of, you are not even worth my time, get out. And here's what Jesus says, turn your cheek. Because suddenly, the only option for that person then is they cannot hit you in the most degrading, demoralizing, dehumanizing way. They have to punch you. And they pushes everything back on the attacker and back on the one who is violent to reevaluate what they're doing. What it does is it sets the table to say, I am a human too, and I'm not going to fight back, and I'm not going to swing back, and I'm not going to battle with you, but I am going to do this with dignity and with honor. When I, when I read this, I was struck by this is the path of nonviolence that we saw in the civil rights movement. We're going to turn the other cheek in the face of enemies who want to oppose us, who want to beat us, who want to bring out the hoses and spray. We're going to stand and we're going to sing hymns. 
It's the path of nonviolence. It's the path of saying, I'm going to look my enemy in the eye and I'm going to force, for, force you to reckon with the fact that I am a human too. It's revolutionary, guys. This is not just like, don't punch somebody that punches you. It's so much more revolutionary. And it's an amazing example of Jesus' redemptive imagination. The way Jesus always beautifully came up with a third way to handle conflict. Rather than attack or avoid, he chooses a third way. The second of these is this idea of taking off your coat. Um, I, I should have brought a picture, but, but for, for first century Jewish life, what they wore was a tunic. right? So it was almost like a dress. Was what everyone wore. So it was this kind of shirt, but it's this shirt that came down to your ankles and was usually tied with a rope or something around the waist. It was kind of a tunic, and and it, we we got to understand like we we live in a world where we have seven pair of jeans and we've got like six different shirts we choose from on Sunday mornings. We've got like all of these different options that we can go to. In in first century Jewish life, they had a tunic and they had a coat. Right? There wasn't like six pairs of Nikes sitting in their closet. Right? The, the, those were the options that they had. And so most people had a tunic, which was the outer cover, which would be considered their shirt. And, and then they also had a cloak or a coat that was their covering if they got cold. Right? So in, in the winters when it gets cold, you wrap that coat around you. So here's, here's the scripture. If anyone sues you to take your tunic, then let him take your cloak as well. Here's what Jesus is saying. If somebody takes your tunic from you, right? Then the only thing you have to cover yourself up is your coat. And he's saying, give him your coat and stand there naked in front of him. And it causes the person who is doing violence against you to see the weight of their violence. It causes the person to see like the cost of this violence against you. It causes them to like look at you as a human and understand where you are. It's this idea of I'm going to give you everything and now I'm standing here with nothing. And if that's the way you want to leave me, you go ahead and leave, but this is where you're at. It's this beautiful, redemptive imagination of what this looks like. The last one is to walk the extra mile. Uh, in, in Roman culture, Roman soldiers always were traveling through the towns. Roman was, Rome was always at war, right? So it's a, it's a wartime country. They're always conquering new places. There's soldiers everywhere. Soldiers always have to feed empire. And so there's soldiers everywhere that are leading to attack and fighting and, and, and all of these things. And so as the soldiers would travel through town, they had these giant shields, right? Have you guys seen the pictures of like the Roman shields? They had swords. They had packs that they had to carry. And what the Roman soldiers had by law permission to do was to grab anybody at any point and say, you need to carry my pack for one mile. So John Moxley's having pizza with his family, and a Roman soldier shows up and says, John, you're going to carry my pack for one mile. He gives him his shield, gives him his sword. It's a heavy thing, right? We're not talking about just a few pounds. It's not like carrying somebody's purse, right? It's a big, well, some purses probably weigh as much as a shield, but I've seen some of y'all come in here, right? But, but it's this idea of like, you're going to carry this and you're going to go for one mile. And, and what it is, is it's incredibly oppressive. You got to understand that Jewish folks at this time lived in the, under this oppressive regime. The, the Roman government took over 80% of taxes from their wages. Can you imagine? 80%. So 80% of the Jews' taxes went straight to Rome. At any moment throughout their day, no matter what they're doing, if they're at their desk working and a Roman soldier walked up to them and said, now you're taking this, and the Roman soldiers didn't do it kindly, right? It wasn't like a, hey, please, could you help me out kind of thing. It was you, 
do this now. It was antagonistic. It was violent at times. There was hitting. There was attacking involved in all of these things. And what Jesus says is if a soldier tells you and forces you to go one mile with them, then don't just go one mile. Go two miles. Because think about this, the next time the soldier is going to pick who he's going to choose to go with him, is he going to choose the one to be oppressive over the person who's kind and gentle and loving and actually chooses to go the extra mile for him, or is he going to choose somebody he hates? He's saying what you do is you set a table in the presence of your enemies, you look them in the eyes and you say, yeah, I'll I'll take this another mile for you. Can I help you more? Because the next time the enemy looks to fight, you will not be the one that he chooses. Redemptive imagination of how the world works. Jesus said there is a third way, and that way is that we don't react to the violence that's done against us. We don't attack when we're attacked. We don't also go passive and do nothing. There's nothing in any of these suggestions that are passive, right? Turning your other cheek and saying, punch me in the face, that's not passive, that's pretty pretty bold. Standing in front of your enemy naked, I, I wouldn't do that, I don't think, right? I, I haven't done this, that yet in my life. Like if anyone forces you to go the extra mile, like these are dramatic, revolutionary, crazy things that Jesus is advocating. But what he's saying is we need to move from being in a place of reacting to our enemies to proactively loving the Lord. So, uh, like I think everything I've learned in leadership, I've learned from parenting. Are you with me? Those of us who are parents, like, I, 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 feel like, I feel like parenting is much harder than leading a church. Like, I, I feel like it's much harder than leading any kind of organization that I've led. I, I feel like it's the most difficult task. And so I feel like most of the lessons that I learn are about, I, I learn them through parenting. And I've, I've got three kids. I've got a 17-year-old son and a 10-year-old daughter who fight more than any humans have ever fought in the history of this civilization. I am convinced that there is no children who have ever fought more than the two of them. Um, and, and here's what happens. My oldest, uh, who may be in the room right now, um, he, he, he kind of walks through life with this big button on his chest that says, this is how you trigger me. Uh, and my youngest, who's a pretty smart little girl, knows exactly how to press those buttons at all times. And so she just walks around and just pokes, right? She knows, she knows how to poke all of his buttons and how to rile him up without ever getting in trouble because she knows he's going to respond with violence. Are you with me? The violence is not usually hitting. It's usually words, right? Um, but there, there's this idea that she knows how to trigger him. She knows how to get him to a place where he will be reactive to anything. And so we're in the car, and everybody in the car is recognizing exactly what's happening. She starts poking. And you can just watch one of my sons, just his temperature starting to rise. It's rising a little bit, and she just keeps poking, and keeps poking, and keeps poking, and then boom, we've got a war (laughs) in the van. Um, Minivans are a terrible place, guys. They're... (laughs) They're horrible. I, I really, I think, I think somewhere in the Bible it says minivans are in hell. Like, I think there's, there's some, things, some passages about, like, that's a part of, uh, yeah. yeah. Come on. Come on. Uh, so so here, here's, what, here's what I've learned. Like, as a parent, um, what my job 
is, is to become a thermostat and not a thermometer. Because here's what happens. A thermometer rises and falls dependent on the temperature of the room. And so as the temperature's rising in the minivan, my temperature starts to rise too because I'm tired of the fight that's been going on for 10 years now. Because I'm tired of the fact that we can't drive for five minutes anywhere without this scenario playing out over and over again because I'm just annoyed about this whole thing. And so rather than allowing my temperature to rise reactively based on the circumstances around me, what I do as a leader is I set the thermostat and say, this is the temperature we're going to operate on. And you guys can go way up here and you can scream at each other and yell at each other, but I'm staying right here. This is the level we're going to deal with this. And leaders set the temperature for the room. Leaders don't react and respond to everything that's ever said to them. They don't react and respond to every conflict or every moment or every trigger that's pulled on them or button that's pressed on them or nasty email that they get or whatever that is. We learn to set the temperature in the room and say, this is how we're going to deal with this. You can yell and shout. I'm staying right here. I'm staying right here. It's the third way of having an imagination for how to walk in this stuff. It's, it's a wonder. Like, we, we wonder why our kids, um, we yell at them before they go to bed and shout at them to get everything done, and we wonder why they don't sleep well. We frantically scream at them to get to church because one of them can't find their shoes or one of them can't find something. And, and in the middle of that, we, we, we expect them to have a great day. We set the tone for our kids. Like your voice will be the inner voice that your children will hear for the rest of their life. And what is that voice? Is it going to become an inner voice of love and of care, or is it going to become an inner critic? So we need to speak life. We need to speak love. We need to speak bravery. We need to speak courage. We need to speak wisdom. We need to speak truth. But most of all, we need to set the temperature and not respond to them like children. There are so many times when I punish my kids, and I act like a child when I'm punishing my kids. Because it's just a, I just, there's just an outburst, right? It's just a, knock it off now, daddy voice, quit it. <laughs> there's going to be consequences, all of those things. Rather than saying, no, 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 no. This is not how we're going to talk to one another. This is not how we're going to work in the car. And if this continues, there will be consequences. It's your choice. Jesus carried with him this unbelievable non-anxious presence. You notice that about him? Like he just isn't coercive or controlling in any way. He doesn't have to fight. He doesn't have to raise his voice. He doesn't have to raise the temperature in the room at all. He stays consistent and just says, this is who I am. And there's constantly an invitation to go deeper into relationship with him, but he's never controlling or coercive in any way in how he does that. There are so many moments. If we just did, if, if, we, if we set a microphone right out here and just had every person in the room come up and give a story of this week when you were triggered or when something happened where you were attacked or somebody said something unfair to you or you got a nasty email or phone call or message or text or whatever, all of us could parade up here and tell a story about how we were abused and wronged this week, couldn't we? Not a lot of nods. Yeah, I, I think we could. I think some of us, some of, some of you are really nodding now. Yeah, I, like I think there, that all of us could do that. The problem is, is Jesus says that's not the way we're going to operate. 
So as I was preparing for this message and I was looking at these passages and I was praying about it, I just started asking the Lord, like, what's, what's, the, what's some of the real dangers for us? What are some of the real dangers for us as a church if we live in this reactive posture rather than in the love of Christ and following his spirit and this redemptive imagination for a third way? And, and the first thing that came to my mind, honestly, was gossip. Like, gossip is the idea that I have to tell my story to somebody else. And when I tell my story to somebody else, I have to put little pokes in there that make somebody else the villain. So not only am I wanting to tell my story, we mask gossip in like, I just need to talk to somebody. It's not, I just need to talk to somebody. It's, I need to talk to somebody about somebody else is what it is. And so we mask it in something else, but actually what we're doing is we're just vilifying somebody else. We're just making somebody else our enemy. We're just saying, this person has hurt me, and so I'm going to recruit everybody I know to know that I have been hurt and that I have been wronged and that they need to do something to fix it. And so what we do is exactly what the Bible tells us not to do. We begin to gossip. We begin to tell stories. We begin to vilify others rather than investing in this idea. Like one of the things one of my mentors taught me, which I have just loved my whole life, is, is what would happen if you just made the most generous assumption you could about everybody? So just a few weeks ago, uh, my dad and I went to this gas station in Ohio. My dad, I don't know, he, he pulled into the parking spot, and this guy thought that he pulled in in front of him and got, I mean, the guy was irate. Like, it was crazy. Like, he, he went from zero to 100 real quick, right? Like, he, he, he jumped off the charts with his anger, and he jumped out of the car and started screaming and cussing at my dad. And, and my dad has always been this amazing model for me of a third way. And my dad just looked at the man, and he said, listen, I, I'm really sorry. I just pulled in here, and if I did anything to hurt you or harm you, I'm really sorry. I did not mean to do that. And the guy said a couple other nasty things and got in the car and drove off. And then my dad got in the car and he said this. He said, I bet that guy's having the worst day of his life. And I thought to myself, that's a generous assumption, right? That's not how this guy normally is. That's not how he normally responds. I caught him at his worst, right? I, it was a, must have been a rough day. Maybe something happened in his family. Maybe he lost his job. Maybe, like, who knows the hurt that anybody we come in contact with is walking through and walking with. And so what if we just choose to make the most generous assumption about one another? What if, what if instead of gossiping and, and telling the story and vilifying someone else, what if we actually just went to the person who hurt us and said, you hurt me? Like I, there, There's not a week that goes by where I don't get a call from somebody who's telling me what somebody else did to them. So-and-so did this, and I don't think they should have done that, and I wish they would have done this, and I, I was hurt by it, and I was frustrated by it. And, and I'm, I'm just going to tell you also, Everybody knows, my first question to anybody that comes to me with that stuff is going to be, have you talked to that person? Have you set a table in the presence of your enemy? Not have you texted them or Facebook messengered them. That's not real communication. Have you sat face-to-face -face across a table from that person and said, you hurt me? And this is the story I'm telling myself, but I care about you, and because I care about you, I want to deal with this and have a conversation. Matthew 18 says, if a brother or sister sins against you, you go where first? To the pastor, who's like the referee of the situation? No, you go directly to that person. And you sit in their presence, and you work it out. You have a conversation. 
Like we're, we're, always, we're always telling our kids, like, act like you're an adult. They're, they're not, but we're, we want them to act like it. And this is part of acting like an adult, is adults deal with situations. Adults don't attack. They don't fight. They don't scream. They don't shout. They don't do all of these things. But they also don't do nothing. They don't say, well, that person hurt me, so I'm just going to pretend like that didn't hurt, and I'm going to stuff all this stuff down inside of me, and I'm never going to actually deal with it. Uh, psychologist Joan Hamilton says this, initially what happens is a grievance story is simply one person's version of what happened. But over time, it becomes something far more malignant. It becomes a detail-packed, often obsessive, repeated, and subtly and not so subtly distorted account that embellishes the role of a villain who is responsible for someone else's hurt. What if we told a new story? What if we started telling ourselves a new story? What if we made the most generous assumption that we could of the people that, we hurt, that, that hurt us? And what if we started imagining a third way into kindness? Um, Sarah and I planted a church in Louisville, Kentucky, and, and, and when we did this many years ago, um, one of the friends that we thought was with us and really excited to be a part of the church was like jumping in, getting excited, hanging out. They were like one of the leaders that we thought were gonna be there and, and be with us. And, and there's certain people as a pastor that, that are like, that they're just your friends, right? And you think that they love you because of who you are and not because you're the pastor, um, but then you realize they just wanted you to be their pastor and it, it hurts sometimes, right? It's, it's like you, you get ghosted and all kinds of crazy things happen. Mermaided, have you guys seen that? Never mind, it's not a real thing, it's a funny joke, but apparently no one's heard it but me. Um, well, all these different things happen, and, and, uh, and, and so this, these people that we just thought were with us, all of a sudden, like, just stopped showing up. Just stopped showing up to our gatherings, stopped showing up to things they were supposed to lead, stopped showing up to anything, and about three weeks later, like, we texted them and tried to call them, and no, no response, no calls back. We tried to invite them for dinner, nothing back, and a few weeks later, we get this nasty email. It's like three pages long, and I'm, I'm telling you, it was venomous. Like, it was the most unfair, untrue stuff about Sarah and I, and about our life, and about who we were, and all these assumptions about what we did, and it was just, I mean, I, I don't have any way to explain it other than it was just really nasty. And, and I can tell you, when I got that, I went straight to my computer and started typing. And it was awesome what I was going to say. I was going to obliterate this email. Like, there's, uh, like some people attack with fists, but I'm a pastor, so I attack with words. And I had all kinds of words for them. And I typed up this email, and I'm, I'm in the middle of typing it up, and I just felt the Lord say, nope, not going to do it. And I felt the Lord saying to me, like, what's the most generous way to respond? I said, well, first I'm going to take a few days and rest. <laughs> and let's cool down a little bit. And then I just simply responded a few days later to say, I'm really sorry if we've hurt you or harmed you in any way. I'm really sorry that we've disappointed you. We love you. We love your friendship. And if you guys need to go to a different place, we bless you and we send you off and just know that we're here if you need us. We didn't hear from those people for like 10 years. And uh, awkwardly, I had a meeting at their church with the consulting company that I work for where I had to meet with her because she was working for another church. And I walked into her office, and I sat down, and she said, you know what? 
I'm really sorry that I sent you that nasty email. I was really angry, and there was a bunch of stuff going on in our life, and it was really unfair. And she said, the one thing I'll always remember is how I, I attacked you in every way, and you just sent me a kind email back. Like There are these moments where we have the opportunity to model a third way. We have the opportunity to say, take my coat too. We have an opportunity to turn the other cheek. We have an opportunity to go the extra mile. And the question is, do we have the imagination for that? And so I want to pray for that today for us. I want to pray that the Father gives us an imagination. Scripture actually says that we are the body of Christ, and if one part of the body is hurting, then all of us are hurting. If one part of the body is being hurt by another part of the body, we're actually destroying ourselves. So all of this animosity and anger over politics and all of this anger and animosity over polarization in our world right now and all this shouting back and forth, the only person it hurts is the body of Christ. Like we are damaging ourselves. We think we're hurting somebody else. We think we're attacking somebody else. We think we're gossiping about somebody else. But the truth is the only person we're hurting is the body of Christ. And so what does it look like for us to have a new imagination? So, so here's, I, I just want to ask you to think about two things today. The first is, wh where is a third way that Jesus is inviting you into? Is there an area of your life where, or, or a person in your life or a circumstance in your life where the only options you see are to attack? And what's a third way look like? Or is there a conversation or something that you've been avoiding and running from and hiding from and gossiping about and not actually dealing with, and there's a third way of how to get there? And the next question is, is there anywhere in your life where God is calling you to be a thermostat and not a thermometer? Where you just know that you just keep getting triggered and you just keep letting the temperature rise in yourself and you just keep getting angry and you just keep fighting back and you need you to realize, I'm going to take a deep breath. I'm going to set the temperature in the room, and I'm going to respond with kindness. And we're going to move into a time of communion, and, and every time we move into communion, we, we remember the body of Christ that was broken and the blood of Christ that was shed for us. We remember that while we were still sinners, while we were enemies to him, Christ died for us. And in doing so, what he did is he modeled the way of a third way. When everyone, everybody wanted Jesus to attack and take over the oppressive, corrupt Roman government, what Jesus did is he died for his friends. When others said, Jesus, just sit this out, like let's just deal with the Jews, let's just save this one part of people, but let's not deal with the Gentiles, let's not invite anybody else in, let's just holy huddle right here and stay safe from the world around us, he died. And in doing so, he modeled the way of what love looks like. Love is self-sacrifice. Love is laying down your life for your friends. Love is giving up your desires for somebody else's. We, we've been talking about this for many years, but, but I, we, I want this church to be known for our love. Like, I, I, don't, I don't want us to be known as like we got a great worship culture or there's good teaching or there's some discipleship go, stuff going on. I want us to be known by, as a church that genuinely loves our community. Like, I want people who don't go to our church and will never go to our church to say, I don't know much about what's going on there. I don't really like the church and I don't really like what's going on there. But I'm, what I see in there is those people are doing something good. And the question that we've been asking is if we were to pack up today and leave the neighborhood, would anybody even care? 
Or have we loved our community so well that they miss us? Have we loved the school down the street that they recognize that our presence isn't there, that they recognize that we're not loving and serving those students, that we're not caring for the least of these, that we're not inviting people to to have a place in our family? And so I just want to throw out to all of us, there is a third way. And that third way is love. Scripture says it is God's kindness that leads us to repentance. Not not our opinions that lead people to repentance. It's our kindness. People belong way before they believe, guys. They belong to a family that loves them. They belong to a community that's actually doing something to make the world a better place. They belong to something that says, I can, I can put down roots here and I can be with these people because these people love me and they care for me and they urge me on and they care for my kids and they care about all these things. And when we do that, that's when, that's when the unstoppable force of the Holy Spirit begins to work. When we start living into the kindness of Christ, when we start acting out his ways of nonviolence and his ways of love in our everyday life and in our world, everything gets transformed. So Heavenly Father, I just pray that you would teach us to love you well, and because we love you well, you would teach us to love others. I pray that you would teach us to be thermostats and not thermometers. I pray that you would teach us to not to respond to violence with violence, but to respond to violence with kindness. I pray that you would teach us to love. I pray that this church would become known as a place of love. I pray that it would be a beacon of hope to a broken world. I pray that we would model a different posture of engagement, uh, that we would be able to disagree with one another in love, that we would be able to have discussions in love, that we would invite anyone in this community who is in need to a table where they can be with us and be loved by us, cared by us. So, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would do your work, the work that we can't do. Stir in our hearts a redemptive imagination for love. It's in your holy name we pray. Amen. We're going to move into a time of worship. You guys can take communion. There's communion stations in the front and in the back. We're going to have our prayer team up here. If there's anything that you want to pray about, that you want somebody to just meet you in this place today, they would love to pray with you and talk with you. But let's come and take communion.